there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thank you so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is John Champion, the lead MLS commentator for ESPN in the United States. We've had some great guests lately, including Dermot McQuarrie, Rob Harris, and Miguel Delaney. I also encourage you to check out my podcast series, American Prodigy, The Freddy Adu Story. You can binge all eight episodes to your heart's content. Now, here's my interview with John Champion. Our guest now is one of the leading soccer broadcasters in the global game. John Champion is ESPN's lead commentator for Major League Soccer in the United States, and he's had a phenomenal 37-year career on both sides of the Atlantic, including eight World Cups and the Premier League from its inception in 1992. John, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much for the invitation, Grant. Lovely to see you too. I think the last time that we met was over a pre-match meal at MLS Cup 2019 in Seattle. Little did we know it would be nearly two years before we would speak again. <laughs> I miss being at games. I know you do too. Oh, so much. So much. I was talking to Taylor uh, Twelman the other day about this, and we, we, we just, we're counting down the days now to when we're actually going to be allowed to go to a game and physically be there. I, I did a few Premier League games when I was back in the UK at Christmas, actually in person at the stadium, and it, 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 you can just do the job properly. You can yeah. be a proper broadcaster and do the whole thing, whereas you're so limited. It's rather like wearing a straitjacket when you're an announcer sitting in an off-tube booth. I was going to ask you about you know, what that's been like, because uh, you've been doing a lot of the games that you're calling in MLS for a while now from Connecticut. And it, it must be difficult, but how, how soon do you think you'll be in a position to start traveling again to cover MLS games? Well, we're waiting on Disney's health and safety protocols to allow us to do that. I think the best guess at this stage, and it is only a guess, is that probably the other side of the Euros We'll start to okay. travel to, to games. That's certainly what we're, we've set that in our minds as something to look forward to, uh, to get yeah. us through this, this period. I mean, you know, everyone's been so dreadfully adversely affect, affected by the pandemic. I can't really sit here and complain about the fact we're having to call games off monitor from a studio. Um, but we, we are ready for that to change, it would be fair to say. Well, I, I definitely want to get into your backstory which is really interesting in this conversation, but I wanted to start sort of with this big decision you made in 2019, and that was to move from England to the United States. What were the factors that went into your decision to take the leap and move over here? Um, well, it wasn't a decision that was made in haste in 2019. It was a decision that had been in the offing from the point that I was kindly invited to call the 2014 World Cup in Brazil by ESPN. And after that, I received a phone call from one of the executives who was going to be in London saying, could I take you out for lunch? And, uh, and we went and had a very nice lunch. And he made it clear at that stage that if I uh, was amenable to the idea of coming to work full time in the United States, there might well be an opening at ESPN. And it was something I sort of put in my back pocket and thought, well, that's very nice. Not sure the time's right at the moment, not least because I have four kids and it would have disrupted three of their education at that stage. Um, but I, I thought that's something that, yeah, it's interesting. I like that idea. And I had a great time doing the World Cup. It was a, an eye-opener, really. I think it was, my, it was my seventh World Cup. The previous ones I'd done either for BBC Radio or for BBC or ITV, the two main TV stations in the UK. And they make a great job of doing them. But when I went to Brazil, the way that ESPN did that World Cup was just on a whole other scale. And I really liked the enthusiasm. I liked the different way of broadcasting. 
I like the fact that it challenged me to think in a different way after many years of doing it in the British way, which isn't necessarily the best way, it's a different way. So I found it a very refreshing experience. And every year, two years, um, there would be a, another meeting with uh, someone from ESPN. They would get me to come over four or five times a year and call the odd MLS game or US game or whatever it might be. Um, and they would always just be knocking away saying, look, that opportunity is still there. And it just got to the stage where uh, I was over with my wife doing a few ICC games. We were touring around in the summer of 2018 and Amy Rosenfeld, who many listeners will know as one of the the cornerstone figures really of broadcasting in the United States over the last 20 plus years, called me in our, our hotel room and said, look, we've often talked about this possibility, but now is really the time to do it. We've got this new thing called the SPN Plus going. We're buying new rights. Uh, we want to make a big thing of Major League Soccer. Um, you know, come and, come and work with us. Come and work with Taylor and, and finally give it a go. And so I turned to my wife and said, look, this could be the time. And this was only going to disrupt one of our kids' education. And it would give him the opportunity to do his final two years in high school in America. What a great opportunity for him. So I just thought, yeah, if I, if I, if I don't do it now, I'm going to continue finding excuses not to do it. And I'm going to regret it in the future. Uh, I got to the stage where I, I was having a wonderful career in Europe. But everything I was doing was not for the first time, not for the second time, not for the third time. I told the same story so many times in the Premier League or the Champions League or whatever the environment that I just wanted to go and start afresh and challenge my own beliefs and ideas and my modus operandi. And I thought, what better way of doing it? So that, in not so brief terms, was the thought process that went into it. That's really cool. I appreciate you sharing that story. And I'm also curious, based on what you said about your experience in 2014 at the World Cup with ESPN and the way things were done differently than what you were used to in England, what are some of those things? Well, I think the scale for the start, I mean, I think the, perhaps the best example of the difference in scale is that had I still been working for the BBC or ITV in the UK, then yes, they would have wanted a presentation position on Copacabana Beach because it's the statement view if you go to mm -hmm. Brazil. And they would probably have arranged for a piece of scaffolding to be erected with a view of the beach in the background and then maybe a, a little hut on top of it for the studio. And it would all have been very nice. ESPN bought a yacht club for their <laughs> studio. They didn't just rent it, they bought it. They took it over, the whole thing. And so that is probably the best example of the difference in scale. But I also, and, and this is, this is a, a by the by, but it was very nice. In the UK, budgets have got tighter and tighter and tighter over my span in the industry. I think they have here as well. But what it means is that whereas you had a very comfortable life when I first started off in BBC television and they would look after you as best they could and you would fly in nice seats on the plane and you get picked up by a car at the airport and taken to the, the stadium. All that's gone now in, in the UK. Um, and yet it still seemed to exist with the SPN. So it's not like <laughs> winding back the clock. And so as I got older and was uh, more requiring of those nice home comforts, they were suddenly available again. So I, I suppose that played to my ego a bit as well. But I just enjoyed the whole experience. And I think one of the other things I would say about it was that it just reinforced to me something I'd always suspected from my visits to the US, that whereas we're dreadfully curmudgeonly in the UK and we look at a glass of beer and we'll say, oh, that's half empty. Here, you will look at the same glass of beer and say, hey, it's half full. You know, we talk about the land of opportunity. And to me, I suppose it has been. I, I'm curious to know, like, 
obviously the pandemic's been happening over the last year, but pre-pandemic, you were traveling regularly broadcasting MLS games. What were some of your favorite parts of traveling around this country? Well, one of the reasons that I, I agreed to take the job was that I'd had these brief tastes when I was brought over just for a game or two here and there. So I'd been to Providence Park to do Portland, Seattle, for example, and that was a really energizing, innovating experience, which I loved. Um, so I've been heartened to see that that's not the only such experience you can have. So going to Mercedes-Benz to call Atlanta United in front of 70,000 people has been a big thrill. Going to some of the newer stadiums packed out to do the first game at, at Minnesota United's new ground was a wonderful experience. The moment that Ozzy Alonso scored the first goal for Minnesota yep. United there, the noise of 20,000 people sounded like 70,000 elsewhere. To go to LAFC and encounter that fascinating mix of cultures inside the Bank of California Stadium, I, I still can't figure whether it's more South American, more European, more just American. But whatever it is, it's an intoxicating mix. So to have some of those experiences has been great. And the other thing I've really enjoyed, aside from having to learn the competition from the ground up, because yes, I would watch the odd MLS game from the UK, but I wasn't an assiduous viewer of every single game. But it's been forging relationships with the coaches and some of the officials of the club. So whereas on my cell phone, I've, I've got all the mobile numbers for you know Alec Ferguson, Sam Allardyce, all the people I've worked with for years in the UK. Suddenly they weren't of a great deal of use to me. Um, so I've had to try and forge similar relationships. And it's lovely to have the privilege, as we do as broadcasters, um, to spend some time with the coaches at training the day before a game. So to go and talk to, say, Bob Bradley for half an hour about his experiences and the way that he spread his wings and tested himself in various markets around the world and now come back to probably the, the, the land clearly that he knows best and to try and win a, an MLS Cup after more than 20 years, um, I think is fascinating. And, and to see the, the battles that Adrian Heath has had in his 11 years in the United States, someone that I know from back home in the UK, but to see the way he stuck at it, made it his home, and now is enjoying the success that he, he probably deserves. To talk to Phil Neville the other day before into Miami game about his sheer enthusiasm for this project. I hadn't realised that when he was a player at Manchester United, he'd spent four summers with the LA Galaxy doing his rehab after injuries and his, his summer fitness. Um, so he's come into this with eyes wide open. So uh, that's been another treat, really, getting to know some of the characters involved in the sport here. Is there, I, I guess, maybe now is the best time to get sort of into your origin story. I, I, I saw your tweet yesterday about, we're recording this on Wednesday, uh, you tweeted about York City FC, the club that you support, and the, I, I guess it was the final game yesterday at their stadium. What sort of memories do you have of that place? Well, that was the place where I first watched a professional football match. Um, it, it wasn't actually the last game, sadly, yesterday. It, they just had a ceremonial switching off of the floodlights because they haven't been it. able to celebrate having a last game because they uh, now play at a level of English football, the sixth division, uh, okay. where they fall. This is the lowest point in their history at the moment, whereby their league was suddenly cancelled in February and there were no okay. more games. So they'd moved to a new stadium. They managed to christen that without saying goodbye to their home of the last 80 years, which is a place where I've seen them and either broadcast or watched as a spectator beat Manchester United in the cup. I've seen them play Manchester United in a league game, play Manchester City in a league game. I've seen them beat Arsenal in the FA Cup, beat Chelsea in the League Cup, play the likes of Everton. So this, I suppose, is a, an example 
in the week that follows the Super League, and I don't know how much we want to get into that. If you want to make me angry, you can. Um, but this shows the, the wonderful sort of dem- democracy of English football as it should be with the pyramid system. So to answer your question, um, I grew up in a city called York, which is 200 miles to the north of London. It's a Roman city. The old Roman walls still surround it. It's a great tourist attraction. And it has, as so many small towns and cities in England uh, have had for the last 120 years, it has a professional football club. It doesn't get that many people watching it, maybe three or 4,000. Uh, and when I was growing up as a boy, my father was a school teacher uh, at a boarding school. And so we lived in the school. And it was about 300 yards as the crow flies from Bootham Crescent, the home of York City. And my parents were both very keen that I should grow up to be a musician. <laughs> they, they didn't have any particular love of sport. So on a Saturday when the football was going on and all my mates from school were going down to watch York City and they'd been talking about it all week. I used to get sent off for orchestra practice, which would last for four hours. And living in this boarding school... <laughs> Music lessons were easily at hand. So from the age of four, I was sort of packed off to learn the violin and the piano. And this was the thing that they wanted me to do. So I had years of this and I used to get more and more frustrated on a Saturday when I could go out into the back garden. I could see the floodlights. I could hear the crowd. And yet I wasn't allowed to go to the game because I had to go and play my violin in the orchestra. And eventually I got to my teenage years or towards my teenage years and I started to rebel. And one Saturday, just as I was being told to go and get my violin case to go off to orchestra practice, my parents had a friend round for lunch. And I knew that he was a big football fan and was going to the game that day. And I made his and their life hell over lunch, creating, arguing, being really obnoxious and pointing out I really didn't want to go to the orchestra. And I would really love at the age of, I think, 12 to finally be allowed to go to the football. And they relented. They let me go. So I was able to leave my violin in the corner and we walked around the corner of the street down Bootham Crescent, which, as the name suggests, is a curved road with a gentle uh, incline. And at the bottom stood the gates of the football ground with the four square floodlight pylons. And we walked in. It was a Saturday afternoon. York were playing Newport County in the fourth division of the English league structure. It would now be League Two would be the equivalent. The crowd, I can still remember, it was 1,978 York won 2-0 with goals from a guy called Peter Scott, a penalty. He used to play for Everton and a chap called Gordon Staniford, who became a great hero of mine uh, as a youngster. His daughter, Lucy Staniford, is now an England women's international, played in yeah. Phil, Phil Neville's side. You've probably, probably heard of Lucy. Um, yeah. But what captured me that day was just this sense of congregation and the surge of noise and emotion as we got close to the gates of the ground. And then I remember the first smell was the smell of liniment coming from the, the, the locker room that you had to walk past the back of at the main stand. And then the click of the turnstile as you handed your pound note in for entry. And the old guy with the scarf and the woolly hat who was selling the match programmes. And then the, the taste of the bovril, which is a disgusting beef drink, <laughs> but typical of that age at football grounds in the 1970s, uh, that I had at half time. And then... The fact that everyone was in sync watching these 22 men kicking a ball around and that it raised such emotions, which I'd never encountered before. I was just captivated by the whole thing. And from that point on, I wanted nothing more to do with orchestra practice. And I just took every possible opportunity to go and and watch York because it was on hand. And also, we were only 20 miles from Leeds, who were not at their best at the time. But that was a chance to go for a whole different experience to Elland Road, a bear pit, as you know. 
uh, with 40,000 people in and see famous footballers play in the old first division, the, the forerunner of the Premier League. So it really didn't take long. Having waited to the age of 12, nearly 13, to be allowed to go to my first professional game, within weeks, that was my centrepiece. That's all I wanted to do, all I wanted to see, all I wanted to be involved with. At what point in that period did wanting to become a broadcaster happen for you? It didn't, Grant. Mine, <laughs> I mean, I, I've just given you one very lengthy story, so I'll, I'll try and tell this next tale in the form of a precy. But I got to the age of 19, was hopeless academically at school, flunked most of our exams, what didn't have the grades to go to university, so crashed out of school with no clear plan, and I decided I would, I'd give myself a year to sort myself out. And I would work for six months to earn enough money to go traveling for six months. So that was the plan. I got myself a job at the British Lending Library, which sounds and is a fairly austere institution. It's a place where academics at the time, pre-internet, um, would write from right around the world if they needed an obscure article in an even more obscure publication for their research. And it would be my job to go to the shelves in this vast warehouse that had these publications going back hundreds of years, photocopy it, put it in an envelope and send it to wherever in the world. So it was, it was a fairly mundane job. And I did this for three or four months and earned a, a pittance, but it was going to be enough to buy a, a round the world ticket to, to go exploring. And then one day I played in a cricket match uh, in, in York and cricket was the one sport I could play to a half decent level. And I managed to get a few runs and afterwards I retired to the clubhouse. And this was pre-mobile phones as well. And after a couple of beers, um, celebrating the fact that I, I had a half-decent game, the, the, the payphone rang in the corner of the clubhouse and I was called across to answer the, the call. And it was the local radio station, uh, which had just set up, run by the BBC, BBC Radio York, wanting to interview me about my innings that day. So fortified by a couple of pints of Yorkshire Bitter, I, I waxed lyrical about how great I'd been that day, um, answered all the questions, put the phone down at the end, went back, had a few more beers and a good night and thought no more about it. A couple of weeks later, phone call at home. My father calls me to the phone. It was the sports editor of the radio station saying, look, we're just trying to set up a sports department. There's no money in it, but we need someone to go and report on a bit of rugby and football this winter. And we really like the sound of your voice. You sounded very fluent on the phone. Well, Grant, you bet I sounded fluent because I'd had two beers and there were several <laughs> more on the way. So I, I thought, well, I've got nothing better to do. I'll give this a go and see where it leads to. Six weeks later, another phone call at home. It was the manager of the radio station saying, we really like what you're doing. Are you enjoying it? And I, I, I just found it easy and it was fun. So I said, yes, it's, it's, it's great fun. I, I'm really enjoying it. I'm really glad you gave me the opportunity. And he said, well, we think you've got the, the tools to actually make something of this if you're interested. If you really fancy it, um, we will we'll back you. Um, but you need to go to university. The BBC will only take graduates. So it doesn't matter how bad the course is, find yourself a university course somewhere. We will give you work at weekends. We'll pay you a bit of money. And as long as you train on, as we hope and expect you to, we'll give you a job at the end of it. So I managed at a week's notice to find myself a place on a course called Communication and Cultural Studies with Public Media um, at a Catholic teacher training college in Leeds, 25 miles from home. And, uh, and I did this for three years. Um, it would be a forerunner of a, a media degree now. And um, I did matches at weekends. And then they kept giving me matches in midweek as well. And then they started offering me a job. 
And I actually had to fight them off and say, no, I, I'm going to do this because if this broadcasting business doesn't work out, I need to have a qualification to back me up. So I stood by ground, did the course. And then six weeks before my finals, there was a, a phone call uh, from a very prim and proper lady called Miss Jackson. And it went something like this. <laughs> bring, 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 pick up the phone. Hello, uh, Mr. Champion. It's Miss Jackson from the British Broadcasting Corporation, Human Resources Department, London, Portland Place, W1. And I thought, crikey. Uh, what's this about? And she said, uh, has anybody spoken to you about the job? And I said, the job? Yes, yeah. she said, the job. I said, you're <laughs> going to have to enlighten me here because no one's spoken to me about anything. Oh, well, there's a job in a place called Leeds. I believe it's in the north of the country. Um, and we put you down for an interview. It's for a sports reporter. Um, Friday, these are the questions we're going to ask you. These are the answers we would appreciate it if you could produce in response. So it was a setup. They decided that this job was coming up on the radio in Leeds. They wanted me to have it, so they told me the interview questions. I turned up, <laughs> parroted the answers. Uh, her final thing was, um, three o'clock, don't forget the answers, and don't forget to wear a tie. So <laughs> she, she was obviously a bit of a dragon, but um, she guided me through it, and they kept the job open until after I'd finished my final exams. And then I started work the next week, and I was sort of off and running. Wow, that's amazing. Wow, yeah, it's something about what I really enjoy about your style, and I'm curious to know sort of at what point this started developing, maybe early on, I love your use of language and the the precision that you have with it. And I'm sort of surprised to hear you were a poor student now because like your, your, your word choice is, I, what's the best way to put it? Almost like writerly, but, but, from an audio perspective and how did that develop that sort of style over the years i'm not entirely sure grant i mean i couldn't do your job i read some of your pieces and it leaves me shaking my head thinking i wish i could write like that um <laughs> but but i couldn't I, I suppose what i've got for whatever reason is a sense of which words are appropriate in a broadcast sense yeah because certainly to be a television commentator, A, first of all, I, I believe is fundamentally different to being a radio commentator. So my background, first of all, was in radio. And at that point, all you've got to do really is describe the scene in front of you. You've got to be a pair of eyes. I was always told to, prepare, uh, to pretend that you're broadcasting to a blind person and just paint the picture for them. However, when you move to television, which I did at the age of 29, so I suppose I wasn't too set in my radio ways, Usually, TV recruits from radio. Certainly in the UK, that was the way of it. And when you think about it, there's no earthly reason why a good radio commentator should become a half-decent television commentator because the skills are so different. So suddenly, I mean, I talked earlier in our, in our podcast about putting a straight jacket on when you go into a booth to do a game off monitor rather than in person at the stadium. And it's rather similar when you make that move from radio to television because suddenly instead of being the artist with a blank canvas in front of you and a full palette of paints able to paint the picture in whatever way you wish now you've got 25 cameras in some instances around the pitch doing 95 percent of the job for you so i think you have to come to a point of acceptance where you realize that actually you become fundamentally less important as a television commentator because the cameras are always going to dominate the experience of people watching the game. And that's what they're really interested in. So instead of describing the scene and being totally in charge of everything, your job is just to augment and provide a bit of supplementary information. 
So it becomes a different mindset. Instead of just having that descriptive language, you just need then to move into a, a, a modus operandi of having um, the most appropriate language and economy of language as well, I think is, is a big yeah. thing. Um, and, and less is, is more. So I suppose I'm lucky in that I couldn't write a thousand words and have people shaking their heads in disbelief saying that's amazing as you could or Henry Winter could or Paul Hayward or the, 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 the many great journalists that we all enjoy reading. Um, but what I think I probably can do is distill things down and hopefully find a vaguely appropriate word or phrase because TV commentators shouldn't speak in sentences, phrases is enough um, to reflect a particular moment in time, I hope. Let's take a quick break from our interview with John Champion, and I'll ask you a question. Do you ever want to watch Spain's La Liga and France's Ligue 1, currently the best title races in Europe, and get frustrated because they're not available on your cable or satellite system? You should try a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis, and you can watch all the action from La Liga, Ligue 1, Copa Libertadores, and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, a tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch top leagues from Austria, Turkey, Brazil, and Argentina. Fanatis features channels you know, like be in sports in English and Spanish, the Women's Soccer Channel, ATA Football, Gold TV, and many more. And it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. You did your first World Cup at age 25, am I right? Mm, uh, yeah. Italian 90? Yes. Um, what do you remember from that experience in, in covering your first World Cup? I just remember being disbelieving that I was actually there um, because I hadn't long moved from local radio up in Yorkshire. I got invited to take a job with the National Radio Sports Department in London doing the national broadcasts and all the World Service um, stuff as well. Um, and three months after I started, I got the, the nod to go to, to Ita, Italy for, for Italia 90. And it was like stepping into a different world because all my background was in domestic football in the UK. Um, I hadn't really done many European games at, at that stage. So suddenly to be there where everything that was great about the game in the world was coming together and you would go to bed in your hotel room at night in Rome and Italy had won and you wouldn't be able to sleep because of the honky of the car horns and the shouts of Scilacci out on the, the street. Um, and then to just see all these different cultures represented at the stadiums that we went to. This was just eye-opening that this existed because, yes, I'd watched World Cups on the TV back home, but the coverage was fairly basic in, in those days. So you didn't really get a true flavour of what it was like. But this coming together of people that loved the same sport that you did from every corner of the world was just the most magnificent experience. And I, I think that was probably a step change, really, for me, seeing that football could actually be that and not just this domestic thing that I'd experienced before. Yeah, fascinating. I became a professional journalist in 1996, so I wasn't covering the sport when the Premier League started. So that's 92. We have this mm. breakaway league. Um, 
But my sense is, and you'll have to help me here, that the breakaway Premier League in 92 didn't get the same reception as the Super League got last week. No, you're right, Grant. It didn't. Um, I mean, the, the Premier League, the advent of that was, was the product of many different factors. And it also came at a time when league football in the United Kingdom was down in the dumps. It, uh, it was the end of a decade that had had the tragedies of Hillsborough and Heysel and the government responses to both of, both of those where football supporters were painted as dirty, almost evil people who just caused trouble. Uh, Mrs Thatcher, the Prime Minister, had been very anti-football. There'd even been talk of banning it at one stage. And, you know, fences had been put up in, in grounds to keep the spectators in, which, of course, led to further tragedy at the FA Cup semi-final at, at Hillsborough. So football was not a popular thing. It was not the thing that the, the, um, the fancy people wanted to be associated with. They'd rather be going to the opera or the theatre. That was the, the sexy thing to do. And then the World Cup happened. And Bobby Robson's England team happened and Gascoigne's tears happened in the semi-final. And that probably was the moment where football crossed the Rubicon from being a, a thing of national shame to becoming a thing once again, as it had been throughout the, the, the vast majority of the, the 20th century, becoming a thing of pride again. People took pride in the national team. They could identify with Gascoigne's tears with Lineker's almost fatherly response, the nod across to Bobby Robson on the bench. And they could also identify with the fact that at last England had a team that had performed respectably after so many failures between 1966 and then. So that made football a much more attractive proposition. The government was no longer against it. And we had this new thing that Rupert Murdoch had created called Sky Television, which was a new form of broadcasting, not through the aerial in your house, but through a dish that you had to have slapped on your wall or put on a, a plate in your garden. Um, and with Murdoch came new ideas, came brashness, came, um, I think, uh, an idea not just of taking over the old first division, but of actually remoulding the whole thing. But because it had been such a tarnished product, this wasn't like the Super League coming in and hijacking something that is seen already as being very successful. This was actually replacing and modernizing a product that needed some work. I told you I wouldn't get too much into Super League here, but I have to ask, <laughs> um, when this all comes down, and granted it fell apart in 48 hours, but we weren't sure that was going to happen. And certainly the owners who announced it thought something different would happen. Was your initial reaction as strong as a lot of other people's in England, like from the moment it was announced? Uh, yes, it was. It was. I mean, we've been down this road before, but we've never been this far down the road. And yeah. I feared it was going to happen. I really did. And my, my reaction was not, oh, damn those American owners or anything like that, because I've seen, <laughs> I have seen those comments out there as right. I'm sure you have. I think that's far too simplistic. I think it's rude, it's xenophobic, and it's more than about Americans because, you know, Daniel Levy is not American and he was leading Tottenham down that route. Um, mm. And, you know, Manchester City are not, not owned by Americans. So let's forget this American thing. But <laughs> I do think it exemplifies the clash of cultures um, yeah. between uh, the sporting culture here where... It's so business-driven. That's been an eye-opener to me. I didn't realise how business-driven, how the dollar sign is so much at the centre of everything to do with professional sports here. Whereas I can't claim that money doesn't matter 
in European football. Clearly it does. And we can't paint UEFA and FIFA as being particularly <laughs> benevolent guiders of the, the course of the game. But at least there is a degree of accountability there that wouldn't have been the case here. I think what, what the, fun, the fundamental difficulty that I have with this is that I fell in love with football because it offers you a dream. And I explained to you earlier, my dream came true of watching my little team from a tiny city in the north of England go toe-to-toe -to -toe in a league game, so on the same level, with Manchester City and Manchester United. Now they're five leagues apart, they're worlds apart, but it can happen. I've enjoyed watching Wimbledon come from non-league football to win the FA Cup and play in the Premier League. We had Bournemouth in the Premier League from a, an even smaller town than, than the one I come from. And, and going toe-to-toe, -to -toe, I was there a couple of years ago, the day they, they beat Liverpool. That's the beauty of it. And the threat of the Super League was that all that was going to be swept away. So I think this concept of sport as something you can dream about is something that's not perhaps as widely understood by some of the owners that were going in on this Super League project as I would have liked it to be. I mean, John Henry, actually, we live in Brookline, an area of Boston. John Henry lives 400 yards down the road. I was thinking of marching <laughs> round there to stage a one-man protest, but I think I'd just have been shouting at the electric gate, so it would have been futile. Oh, that's great. Um in terms of, if I were to ask you, I know this is difficult when you've been doing this for 37 years. If you had to pick a couple of truly, like the most memorable games that you've done called over the years, and I don't know if these are like, maybe these are World Cup finals, maybe these are games none of us have heard of where something wild happened. If you had to pick a couple of games, what would you pick? From a broadcasting point of view? Yeah. Okay. Um, usually I go for England-Argentina, World Cup 98, which I did for yeah. BBC Television. Just because it's a match that had so many different elements to it. And it, it also, for me, although he was already a prominent figure, it, it launched Brand Beckham. Yep. Because I, I think every, every hero needs a degree of notoriety to take that leap to superstardom. And the red card when he was representing the hopes of a desperate nation that night, added that little bit of notoriety. And then came the marriage to a Spice Girl and the package, as we all now now, now know, blew up and became this extraordinary thing, um, which is still going strong all these years later. So I, I think that plus Michael Owen's wonder goal in inverted commas at the age of 18, mm -hmm. um, the fact it, it ground out to penalties, Sol Campbell had a goal disallowed controversially fairly late on. Um, and then the inevitable defeat on penalties once it got to that stage. But even then, England offered hope in the midst of the shootout and then threw it away. So there were so many elements to that. And I suppose broadcasting that to the UK and it being England made it a, a big night. The other one, um, I mean, there are so many games that I could, I could talk about. And many of them actually would be knockout cup ties, particularly the FA Cup, which has given me some of my greatest memories. But you asked me about it from a broadcasting perspective. And I would say that the one that probably sticks in my mind, and it, it was nearly a tragic story, would be um, being at the microphone for an FA Cup quarterfinal at White Hart Lane, the day that Fabrice Mwamba collapsed mm. on the pitch and suffered a cardiac arrest. So from a broadcasting point of view, that's a day that will forever remain with me because the prospect of being on live TV, trying to guide an audience through that, um, amidst a horrible silence around the ground, seeing a man break out of the crowd, 
break through some policemen and run on, who we didn't know at the time was an eminent cardiologist who saved Mwamba's life. Um, his heart stopped for 73 minutes. I was being told by the producers, look, he's died in the tunnel. But I couldn't say that. We didn't have confirmation of that. So how do you guide your audience through that whilst retaining the hope that maybe a miracle would happen and he would pull through? And that was the balancing act. So as a broadcaster, that was probably as big a challenge as I've faced. So for a very different reason, it's something that does stick in my mind when you ask about memorable broadcasting experiences. Yeah, I can imagine that. Wow. Um, so your family, it wasn't just you who made this decision to move to the United States. It was you, your wife. Sounds like one of your kids is with you. Yeah. yeah. Where Where are your other three kids? So they're, they're back home. So, uh, I mean, I call them kids. They're, they would claim to be young adults now. So we've got a daughter <laughs> of 25 uh, who lives in London. We've got a, a son who's just graduated from St. Andrews University in Scotland uh, who is, is setting up an app with some of his university friends that is, uh, is helping students around the UK uh, get cheaper deals with retailers. And I don't, as you can tell, I don't fully understand it. The technology is beyond <laughs> me, but we're very proud of what he's doing. I've got another son who's at Edinburgh University in Scotland. And then our youngest boy, Will, who's a big sports fan, uh, has, has enjoyed his two years here at high school. Uh, he's going to go back to the UK, have a, a gap year, which is a dreaded prospect for any parent because you've got to fund it. And then he's going to go to, to university back there. But he's thoroughly enjoyed his, his two years in high school here. He's played on the football, as in American football team. Oh. Decided he wanted the full experience. So that's been great. Sadly, the pandemic has curtailed that more recently. Um, and uh, the other extraordinary thing that's happened is that my wife came over here, which is great. And with the pandemic... She's never been a football fan. So when we met nearly 30 years ago, she knew that Alan Shearer was, quote, a goal shooter. But that was about as far as it went. <laughs> but because we've been somewhat limited in being able to go out here during the pandemic, and there is live Premier League football on every day, and MLS is widely available too, she's now at the stage where she will not miss either a Minnesota United or an Everton game, which is largely <laughs> down to the fact that I took her to Minnesota for a match in 2019 and introduced her to Adrian Heath and his delightful wife, Jane. And because of uh, the hospitality we received in Minnesota, she decided she was going to be a Loons fan. And then when I explained the Everton link with Adrian, she thought, well, I'll, I'm going to I'm going to take up the cudgels on behalf of Everton. Now she's got the Everton official supporters app on her phone. And she'll <laughs> she'll sit here with me watching Everton on NBC shouting at the referee. So she's she's got the bug. Fantastic. What's her name? Uh, Anna. Anna. Well, I hope the loons have sent her her own personalized shirt at this point, and maybe even Everton as well. Uh, but that's that's a really cool story. My wife, not you know, very much into her her doctor work, not a soccer fan, which uh, is the source of amusement for all of our friends as well. But what you may, uh, if my experience is any guide, then in twenty years' time, you may find <laughs> Dr. Celine Gounder signing up as an ardent fan of some team yet to be born but it can happen i never thought it, it would happen. with my wife and it has <laughs> fantastic so you're you have a partner here taylor twelman who you do most of your games with when you're broadcasting a game how has that worked how does how does it work when you develop a relationship with somebody and you travel with them and you two have different personalities but i think it works <laughs> and, and there is a nice chemistry that's developed there but how does that develop um i think just through spending time together 
I mean, he was instrumental in me coming over here as well. It wasn't just Amy Rosenfeld and Chris Alexopoulos and Matthew Leach, you know, the, the excellent soccer personnel who've been doing it for years at ESPN. It was, it was Taylor as well who was in my ear saying, come on, come and give it a go. Because we'd done a few games together, enjoyed each other's company. And, um, and, and so he was, he was a big, big part of it. And he is, his family have been extremely welcoming to, to us since we've been over here. They only live just outside Boston, so they're pretty local. Um, in terms of developing the broadcast relationship, I, I do think it's just repetitions. It's getting to know the nuances. It's getting to know the boundaries. It's getting to know what Taylor wants from his part of the broadcast and him getting to know what I need to do. And it's partly my job as the long-term professional broadcaster to create a platform, whoever I'm working with, to allow the analyst to give of their best. So in mm -hmm. a sense, it's for me to slightly keep out of the way and allow Taylor to be Taylor. But he's, he's very clever. He's a very good TV animal and he's cognizant of what he needs to do to give me a platform as well. So uh, we're not, we're not, neither of us is desperate to be the star of the broadcast because the star of the broadcast, frankly, is the game. It's neither of us. And it's our job not to get in the way of that and hopefully just to enhance the viewer's enjoyment and experience of it. And I think we're, we're both kind of aware of that. A couple more questions here with John Champion. Really appreciate you taking this much time. Um, as far as the Euros are concerned this summer, ESPN is broadcasting those games. Do you know yet what you're going to be doing and where? Um, there's been a bit of a change of plan. I don't think I'm, I'm betraying too many trade secrets. The idea was that uh, Ian Dark uh, and myself would both be in Europe traveling around, and I think other announcers too. But it's just, on the advice of UEFA, it's not going to be practical for us to move from country to country with the quarantine requirements. So I think Ian is going to be based in Europe, where he lives. Um, and then I'm going to do the majority of the tournament off monitor from Bristol with Taylor. And then we're, we're going to fly out in the latter stages of the tournament to, uh, to London. So we do get a taste of it, perhaps not quite as big a taste as we were going to have, but we will still get to, to experience part of it. And by that stage, hopefully Wembley is going to be more than half full. They're, they're talking about 50% 50 50 plus capacity, which would be 45,000 people, which would, it would feel novel really now. It really would. I, I just enjoyed seeing a few fans there for the League Cup final over the weekend. Uh, so fingers crossed on all of that. I can't wait for the year. I know that there's still a lot of questions about how it's going to shake out, but it looks like the tournament's going to happen at least. And Yeah, yeah. The people I talked to back in the UK are now, whereas three, four months ago, they were a little iffy as to whether it would take place in, in any sort of recognizable form. Now they're pretty con confident that Yes, we've lost a couple of venues, but we are going to get the proper Euros experience. Good, good. Um, I guess lastly, I'm just curious to know, what are some things you still want to do in the U.S. that you haven't done yet? Oh, so many things. So many things. And, and for my wife as well, she's eager to travel. That was one of the attractions of, of coming here. We had a little trip down to New Orleans last year, um, which was cool. not connected with a match because sadly they haven't got an MLS franchise as we know, but you know, that was great. We'd love to do a lot more of, of that. I'd love to take a proper road trip. Um, I'd, I, you know, I'd quite like to drive across the country, do a sort of Route 66 oh, wow. type, type thing uh, and, and explore some of that. Um, there are areas that I've, I've never been to. Uh, there are other areas that I'd really like to explore more and the Pacific Northwest is is one of those. I mean, happily, Seattle and Portland are frequent destinations for us. But every time I come in on the plane and see Mount Hood, um, I, I kind of think, well, I'd like to explore a bit more around here. And the, um, the orthopedic surgeon at the Timbers is a huge wine fan 
who's offered mm-hmm. to take us on a wine tour of Oregon. And I think that's something we would be remiss if we decided we weren't going to do that. So, um, uh, so, so many things such as that. Nashville, we've got Nashville actually in MLS this week on, uh, on Sunday on ESPN against Miami. Just sad that I won't be going there because I'd love to experience the Music City. So, so many things to do and hopefully plenty of time to do it as well. Yeah, I remember on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, I, I mentioned the Stanley Tucci uh, show mm. on CNN about uh, following him as he eats in different parts of the country there. And you mentioned that that was a guilty pleasure of yours as well. And I, I'm down for an ESPN Plus video of you and your wife and Oregon wine tours. I, I would be totally down for that if you want to do that. So would I, by the way. And hopefully one of the ESPN execs will hear this and think that's a great idea and, and green light it. My one worry with this is that Taylor and Mark Connolly, as long-serving and very excellent producer, have tricked me on occasions into trying the local delicacy wherever we have been. And I am still scarred, and I'm choosing my words carefully, I think I'll, I'll stick with scarred, still scarred by being force-fed Skyline Chili in Cincinnati. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you on this, and I don't want to offend our Cincinnati listeners. You've got a wonderful new stadium that's about to open, <laughs> and your team hopefully will get there someday. I'm not a Skyline Chili guy, but I'm glad you tried it. it, it you at least need to, at some point, just, is Taylor a big fan, or, or did he... He made out that he was a big fan. He made out that he ate it sort of every other day of his life. But then he just started (laughs) laughing at me when the sort of seventh ingredient was added to this thing that I thought was just going to be a basic chili, but it wasn't. (laughs) On that note, we will finish up here. John Champion is ESPN's lead commentator for Major League Soccer in the United States. You can watch him all year long on ESPN broadcasting MLS games with Taylor Twellman. John, thanks so much for coming on the show. Grant, it's been great fun. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank John Champion as well as producer Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview with someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. Mm